You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Benjamin. It's great to have you joining us online, and I'm excited to preach the second sermon in our series uh, called Conversations with Jesus. We are looking at how Jesus, the master himself, uh, conveyed his message, his gospel, to the people that he met, because there's no better person to learn than from Jesus. He gives the instruction, he lays it all there, and if we just take it and step out by faith, he promises by the power of his Holy Spirit, Matthew 29, 20, that he will help us to do it. He's got the answers, and all we have to do is put it forward. Last week we uh, looked at Jesus' conversations with a three-strike outcast that we know as a Samaritan woman. We just saw just how amazing it was that this man, uh, this man Jesus, sought out this woman who we could probably uh, put her or, or stack her up to in our 21st century, probably as a recovering meth addict with five children from five different fathers. That's the kind of outcast that she would have been compared to the kind of person that uh, we would find in our 21st century Canadian context. Yet we see that Jesus intentionally, with purpose, sought her out to tell her, to convey to her that he was the Messiah. She was the first one to find out. That's a pretty amazing honor that this woman had, which says to us that Jesus doesn't look at a person's failures, doesn't look at their their outward appearance. He is looking to the heart, and that's what we should be looking at too. This week we're going to look at a totally different kind of person, and I'm excited. Like, this guy is probably one of the last people you would ever think Jesus would talk to. But first, before that, I just want to talk to you about a few um, things I want to encourage you to go out to. Women, um, every... Now, Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., there is a woman's uh, worship and prayer service, 10-person max, but we want you to sign up online, ladies, so that you can worship together uh, and pray together, and it's at uh, 6 a.m., so it's a good time to wake up. It's a great time to be awake. It'll be you and the cows that are awake and Jesus, and it's just an awesome time. I also want to encourage you, we're having a second prayer meeting that's Wednesday uh, nights, and uh, if you are interested in that, sign up online. That's for those of you that uh, can't make it on a Thursday morning uh, prayer meeting. Uh, Those who are working, we want to encourage you to get out to that. And also, uh, last week at the start of my sermon, if you didn't hear it, I did a presentation about the situation in Burma and that the Free Burma Burma Rangers, a missionary organization which we've talked about in the past, uh, was raising money to feed the 20,000 Christians uh, plus the... 300 and something thousand uh, people that are hiding in the jungles with the civil war uh, or the government crackdown, we could call it, going on there. We have reached, I get given a goal of, uh, that I would love to see Calvary uh, raise $5,000 towards that $750,000 it was going to take to keep those people alive for the next uh, three months. And we have reached $3,510 as of recording this, which is Thursday. And I would just love, and I just want to thank those who have given uh, generously. That's an amazing thing. Like, to think about that. Like, I just want you to think about it. You're going to get to heaven, 
and all things are going to be shown to you. Can you imagine uh, if you just see a bunch of people walk up to you and they're like, hey, we were some of those people hiding in the jungle. And you gave so that we could live. We could feed our families. Can you imagine how awesome of an experience that will be? So I want to thank you, those who have given. And if you were maybe hesitating or you didn't hear last week's message, the information uh, is on the weekly uh, email. And we want to just encourage you uh, to give. I'd love to see uh, that number get to 5,000 or go past it. Let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, thank you so much. Man, it's a crazy world that we live in. But you are an awesome and amazing God. And like I'm just so excited, Lord, as I see you interacting with uh, this man uh, to know that you did and to see it 2,000 years ago. I can't wait to meet this man uh, in heaven. And Lord, there are plenty of other men and women out there in the world who need you. And so God, I'm excited to see that, hey, you're, you've laid out the instructions for us to do it. Uh, Lord, let us not uh, be fearful of sharing the gospel with others. Let us boldly uh, move forward with love and compassion and grace, seeking your wisdom, and help us to do that. Help us to have ears to hear right now and hearts that are willing to do. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1995, Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon touched moviegoers with a deeply emotional film called Dead Man Walking. Both of them won Oscars for their roles, best leading and best uh, male and female. This was back in the days when you actually won an Oscar for your acting abilities, not your political leanings. This film was about uh, the last uh, week or so of a very violent, convicted murderer's uh, life on death row. And he is befriended by a nun, Susan Sarandon, uh, and over the, the week... Penn's character slowly opens up to her and he takes responsibility for his actions and he seeks forgiveness uh, from God for the things that he has done. It's, it's not a movie for the, for the lighthearted. Uh, and, and the movie climaxes with, with uh, uh, Penn walking what they call death, death, uh, dead man's row, his, the, the hallway that leads to the execution chair where he has a public execution. And, and as... Uh, he's walking it, they're yelling out, dead man walking, dead man walking. And, and when I thought of the scene that we see here in, in Luke chapter 19, uh, it, it kind of popped into my mind that, that we see another dead man walking. Now, now Jesus knows that he is going to give up his life soon. He's about 10 days away from dying for the sins of the world. The Son of God is, is not guilty like Sean Penn's character of committing any crimes. In fact, he is innocent, yet he is going to go and give himself for the sins of humanity, the sins of those who believe. So you'd think, what is this man doing in the last 10 days of his life? Is he visiting old friends? Is he saying goodbye to his parents? Is he, is he taking rest? Is he indulging in some of the, the good things of life that maybe he never had the opportunity to? He is famous by this point. 
Luke chapter 18, which is which just within the day and leading right up to the events that we see in Luke chapter 19 tells us. He's teaching about humility. He's spending time blessing children. He's rejecting a rich young ruler from salvation. He's, he's encouraging believers to store up for themselves treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth. And just like within an hour before this is taking place, just on the outskirts of, of Jericho, he has healed a blind man. And, and, I, and I think of, you know, the scene walking in. And we know that there's a spiritual realm that we can't see, but we know it's there. And I think, I wonder if the demons and, and Satan, who's, who's telling them, we got this Jesus, he's done. There's this big plan and it's going to be hatched and we're going to take him out. The Son of God won't reign on earth. I wonder if the demons were thinking there's a dead man walking. But little did they know this was all a part of the plan. We pick it up here in Luke chapter 19 verse 1 Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through that's an important thing don't miss that he was passing through that implies that uh, this this passing through period is unimportant Uh, that that he's left Galilee which Luke tells us and he's on his way to Jerusalem that that's the important place that is the target and this passing through period really doesn't have much importance he's passing through a town called jericho it is the famous jericho uh, that uh, joshua brought the israelites in and god knocked down the walls it was the biggest most powerful city in that area at the time a thousand years before and and we know that it was destroyed but as jericho is today a town was built on top of it And this town never became a big city like it used to be, but it did become a very prosperous, wealthy town, famous for its palm trees, as that area still is today. And Jesus was passing through it. And so much of our life, if you think about it, is passing through, isn't it? Every day, we're passing through most of our life. It's not our destination It's not the place we've come from. It's this period where we spend so much of our time not really engaged in the present. We wake up in the morning, and oftentimes we we pass by our conversations with our families as we're getting ready to work because we've got to get to work. And and then we're off to work, and and whether we're driving or or walking or riding a bike, uh, we're passing through the neighborhood, passing by all sorts of people. And then we're at work, and often we've got so many tasks to do, we're passing by all the conversations and all the relationships with people at our workplace. And and then on our way home, it's the same thing, passing through. And then we get home, and, and it's dinner time, and sometimes we're so focused on the nightly events, we pass through those conversations and, and we're not in the moment and then it's nighttime and then we got to get ready for the next day and we're passing through those relationships. So much of life is wasted just passing through. But Jesus demonstrates, as here, as he does in, in all the Gospels, that sometimes the places in between where we've come from and our destination are the places of greatest opportunity for ministry, to do that which God has called us to do. And that's evangelism tip number one. You can write this down. Hopefully you've got a piece of paper and your Bible open. Evangelism tip number one. We must live life with our eyes wide open, looking for opportunities. 
We must live life with our eyes wide open, looking for opportunities. Opportunities on the way to the store. Opportunities at the store. Opportunities at your business or or at your place of employment. Opportunities at music concerts. Opportunities when you're out for a walk with the dog. Opportunities all over the place. Like, I hear it nowadays. People aren't doing too well. I, I often hear from, from people in the church, you know, not, not every day, but, but often, enough, someone will say, nobody calls me from the church. Or nobody invites me over from the church. I, now, I don't know if they call anybody or invite anybody over, but that's something I often hear, and that's in the church, a place where people are more or less more connected than people are out there. People out there, people are lonely. Many of them are just passed by every day, and they're looking and they're waiting for people to stop and take an interest in them and get to know them, to care about them. And that's what Jesus does here. In order to do that, we have to be willing to change our plans sometimes. We have to be willing to adjust our plans. We can't always be focused on the next end point. We can't be too busy just passing through. Verse 2, we see a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Well, when I think of a tax collector, I, I think of vampires. And, and now if you've read the, the original book, Bram Stoker's novel, which was released in uh, 1897, uh, he introduced the world to the mythology of vampires. And now they're very famous. So many movies and books made about them. But, but uh, Stoker took his idea of Count Dracula from uh, a person that lived in the 15th century named Vlad Dracula. He was born in Transylvania. He, he fought and became famous for fighting against the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, um, when they invaded Romania. And he was known, and in, in, uh, he ruled in 1456 to 1462. And the legend is, is as he defeated the Turks, he, he took pleasure in dining amongst his victims, dying victims, that is, and drinking and dipping the blood of his bread, or his bread into the blood of those who were dying, which then led to the mythology of these, these supernatural beings that suck the life blood, uh, the life force, we would call it, out of people, and therefore gaining strength from their death and gaining their vitality. And not a kind of person you'd want to have over for tea or to look after your kids. And, and so I want you to think just a second that that we would we would despise these people, right? We would look at them as enemies, right? That is a first century Jewish tax collector, the vampires of the first century. Now, to understand it, Rome, who conquered many nations, had a giant empire running, and in order for Rome to actually do it, they needed the help of the locals to tax their own people. 
And so instead of sending Roman soldiers and sending Romans to do it, they would hire Jews. Uh, they would hire people from every country, but in Israel, they'd hire Jews, educated people that knew the system, uh, knew the, the commerce of the land, and they would give them some Roman guards, and they would say, we want this much out of each citizen, and anything extra you get without causing a riot, anything more you can squeeze out of them is yours. And so... They would do that, and, and historians estimate that the average person, uh, Jew, in the Roman Empire, okay, looking at all the different taxes, uh, was taxed somewhere between 70 and 90%. Take, that means they would work and slave for very little, and they would take home maybe 30 to 10%. And so that's why they were looked at, you know, figuratively speaking, as, as a person who would suck the life, get rich, get prosperous, stay young, enjoy all the things that the average person couldn't by squeezing it out of their own people. And not only was he a tax collector, a vampire, but he was a chief, like a ruling, it says. Like this guy took a piece off of the top of all the other tax collectors. And this was a very wealthy city. That's why it says he was rich, because he was very rich. He was like one of the heads of the Gambino crime family, a violent man. If, if you didn't get, give your taxes, he could send the Romans to kill, rape, do whatever they wanted. They were really untouchable. Yet... Like, I, I want you to get this. He's all these things, yet, verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. He wanted to see who Jesus was. And that's evangelism tip number two. Never think that anyone is beyond redemption. And never put it into your mind that, oh, this group and this group and this group, or this kind of person, they're above redemption. Anyone can be saved. And sometimes God has uh, a way of surprising us by saving and redeeming some of the worst of people. And this guy was one of the worst of people. Like, let's understand the context again. Jesus is 10 days away from his death. He is three plus years into his ministry. He is famous all over the land. Other nations have heard about him. Everybody knows what he's about He's not, he doesn't want money. Everybody knows that. He, he's, he's no mystery. He's not looking for power. He's not looking for pleasure. He cannot be tempted. He is not morally corrupt. Zacchaeus knew what Jesus was, who he was. He knew he couldn't offer him anything. He couldn't give him a position of power. Just says he wanted to see who Jesus was. You know, sometimes people think that or sometimes people reject Jesus because they think that the world has something better to offer than what Jesus has to offer and what God has to offer. But Zacchaeus, a man who had everything that the world could offer at that time, realized somewhere, some point in his life, that everything the world had to offer still left him empty. And then it says, but because he was short... He could not see over the crowd. That's one of the things that always catches people's attention when, when I talk to people about it. They're like, tell me about Zacchaeus. Well, he was short. Like, and people like, kind of think like he's like a hobbit. No, he's just a short guy. He's just shorter than the average person. 
and he just couldn't see over the crowd. If you've ever been, you know, if you ever had your kids at a, like a Santa Claus parade or something like that, right, the kids can't see over, and you got to hoist them up on your shoulders, right? And, and then the person behind you is upset because, oh, they can't see. Well, too bad. And, uh, and, and that's the sort of situation. Zacchaeus came. He didn't come with his Roman guards. He didn't come with his entourage. He came himself, okay? Which is not something that a person like him would do. And yet he couldn't see. Back then, if you want to see someone, you had to see someone in person. No phones to take a picture, no social media, no news, no magazine, no print. He heard about Jesus, and he wanted to see him for himself. But he couldn't, because the crowd was blocking him. And that's a question for us. The question is, what in the 21st century, in 21st century Canada... What things are keeping people from seeing the real Jesus? Like, what are the things? You know, there are people out there looking for God. There's lots of people looking for God. It's a very hopeless situation out there. And there are many people seeking. What's keeping them from seeing the real Jesus? Well, some would say it's our, those liberal churches. They, they, they've told everyone that Jesus isn't actually God, and there's many ways to, and the Bible isn't actually God's word. It's those liberal churches that have messed everything up, and they're keeping people from seeing Jesus. True, but not the central thing. Well, maybe it's the school system. Well, the school systems raised three generations and told them they're just primordial ooze, and there's, there's no point to life, that, that, that there's no right and there's no wrong, and after this is just blackness and... and it's the school's fault. Well, that contributes, but that's not the primary problem. Well, then it's the biased news, right? Because we know we don't have unbiased news anymore. It's the biased news that, that paints the picture of Jesus, of who they want, and they, and they put these documentaries on, and they, and they make Jesus out to be some, some mythical figure that wasn't actually there and didn't actually exist. It's their fault. Well, maybe that had some effect, but I don't think that's the primary thing that stops the average Canadian from seeing Jesus. I think it's us, us Christians. There's this guy, some of you might have heard of him, Gandhi. He was uh, sort of the pioneer. He was a, a, a lawyer, an Indian lawyer. He was a sort of a spiritual guru and became very political in India in the 20th uh, century, he pioneered uh, and uh, practiced the art of uh, resistance to tyranny without violence, non-violent tyranny. Martin Luther, uh, actually Martin Luther uh, Jr. actually learned that art from him and that he carried it on to his protests. Well, Gandhi, who's looked upon by many as a very wise uh, sort of mystical uh, person, said this. He says, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And you know, sometimes he's got a point. Not, not always. Sometimes it only takes a, a few bad apples to ruin the whole bunch. And see, the Christian faith really only works like this. If I'm paraphrasing, you know, the teachings of Jesus, it's like this. The more you give yourself to Jesus, the more you believe in him, the more you look to him as your savior, the more access you give to him, the more he changes you into the image of him 
itself. And the more he changes you into the image of himself, the more then he encourages you to reflect that to the world. And they see, right? And, and, and when they see Jesus living through you, they don't just see a religious person who puts on the name Christian. They actually see something supernatural. They actually see God living through a man or a woman. That is the recipe for an effective Christian life and an effective evangelism. And there's this title that is going around. It's a popular title in the last 20 or so years. It's called Nominal Christians or Nominal Christianity. And, and the, uh, the definition for it is Nominal Christians are churchgoers who, or otherwise religious people whose faith does not go beyond being identified with a church, Christian group, or denominations. They are Christians by name only, and Christ has no bearing on their lives. In Jericho in the first century, the thing that was keeping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus was the crowd. In Canada in 2000. 21, I think the primary thing keeping people from seeing Jesus is nominal Christianity, which makes up a large part of Western, of the Western church. But let me ask you a question. When you go to the hospital and you've got an emergency, do you want to see a nominal doctor? Like somebody who's like, I like the paycheck, but I don't really like the job. And I just come in when I have to. I don't really read up on anything. No, you want to see somebody who's like an all-in doctor, who's like passionate about their job, wants to do a good job, right? Because they believe in it. When you fly on a plane, do you want to hear that there's a nominal pilot flying the plane? It's like, I just wear it for the, to get the ladies. <laughs> I wasn't really paying attention um, in flight school, and, and I don't really care if I do a good job. I hope the autopilot's on. Right? No, you'd be like, I want the all-in pilot, the one who's really studying up, who really cares about taking good care of and flying these people. Right? I want an all-in pilot. Right? And, and the same is true. The nation, our nation, our community doesn't need more nominal Christians, doesn't need more Christians by name only. It needs Christ followers, which is evangelism tip number three. Let Jesus change you from the inside and then let him live out of you, okay? You gotta let him do the work inside of you, Christian. You, you can't just be a, I'm a, I'll go to church on Sunday and maybe listen to some of the things he says and, and, and I'll just give in to the world the rest of the week. No, you've gotta be, I'm in it all. Not, not I'm not in the church all, I'm into Christ all. He has full access to me. He is my God, and he is allowed to change me into the image of himself. I'm giving him full access. And then you've got to say, okay, God, you can live out of me now. T show me, tell me what you want me to do. Help me to reflect your goodness to this broken world. That's what we've got to do. If you want to have an effective evangelism, you've you got to be willing to let people see that Jesus inside of you. Verse 4 says... He ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. I, I just imagine this scene. And there's so many things happening here. 
first of all, we've got to recognize the perseverance of Zacchaeus. Like, let's understand, I, we talked about on Easter, if you were here for the Easter sermon, that, that first century Middle Eastern men, as the same as Middle Eastern men today, do not run, okay? It's not something that they do. They don't run because they don't want to hike up their, uh, their toga, which then would show their legs, which is a very no-no thing in the Middle East. So first of all, they don't run. Second of all, they don't climb. Toga, do I need to say anything more? Like, they don't climb because... Yeah, that. People can see up it. And so here we have a very rich, wealthy man, a chief tax collector, running and climbing a tree in front of the public to see Jesus. He is very persistent. He is very eager to see Jesus. We could even almost say he's desperate to see Jesus. Second thing we see here is, is Jesus doesn't stop for anyone else. Okay, did you notice that? There's lots of people out, it says. There's lots of people following him, you know. You know, they're, they're on his tail, but Jesus just goes right through Jericho. He heals the blind man in the outskirts, goes right through. He's coming to the end. He's on his way. He looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree and stops. It, like, what's the typical way a rich man would uh, summon uh, a meeting with Jesus back in those days? Well, there's several occurrences. One in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says, when the Pharisees uh, wanted to see Jesus, they sent someone and invited him to dinner. And then he went to their house. Like that's the something a rich person would do. Uh, they'd send one of their minions and say, rabbi, teacher, master, so-and-so wants you to come. That's what Zacchaeus would have done typically if he wanted Jesus to come. But Zacchaeus knew, I think, that Jesus wasn't going to respond to that. But he responds to this, and this stops Jesus in his tracks. And it's a reminder to us, this should be a reminder to us, that God is watching for those who are eager to have presence with him. Like, to the non-believer, those calling out, like we saw with Cornelius, he didn't know Christ, but he was praying, asking for, for God, he was asking, praying to God, and God responded, and he sent Peter. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong to those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. There's this concept, and in, in, in we see it throughout Scripture, that God is looking for those who are either Christians who are fully devoted to him, and he's going to bestow more of himself and his presence on them, or those who don't know but desperately want to know. I think that's why the Middle East and China and Africa are exploding in faith and the West are dying in faith. Third thing we see here is that Jesus gives one of the greatest honors you can give a person to one of the most undeserving people. Like, there's a difference between the Samaritan woman and, and Zacchaeus, right? The Samaritan woman, she never had the ability to, to really get much out of life. She was a woman in the first century, so she's just, she was a Samaritan, an outcast, right? Uh, maybe she didn't pick a good partner, her first couple of partners, and then she just made some bad decisions after that. But Zacchaeus is a total different story. He is a scumbag. He is an evil man. He is somebody who has gotten rich, off of bringing pain and suffering to other people. And yet, Jesus honors him. Gives him one of the greatest things you can do in the Middle East. And that's tip number four. Honor the undeserved with your love. 
honor the undeserved with your love. Like, sometimes we just want to honor, like, do the best things, like, give special things, give special attention to those who deserve it, right? Like, we're not going to give it to those shady-looking people or, or, you know, uh, the undesirable people or even the evil people. Sometimes that gets their attention. Like, if somebody who knows, like Zacchaeus would know, that they don't deserve it, and you show them, you honor them, you love them, that gets their attention. So how did Jesus honor them? Two ways. First of all, he changed his plans, right? Back to verse 1, Jesus was passing through. There was no indication he was going to stop. That wasn't on his list. He's going to Jerusalem, yet he changes his plans. And what does he say he wants to do? He wants to stay at his house. That's the second way he honored him. In the Middle East, to go to somebody's home and share a meal with them was one of the greatest honors you could do. When, when I was in the Middle East and, and somebody, somebody would invite you into their home and they would sit you down, they actually, Middle Eastern uh, hospitality is, is much is much more frequent and, and, and much more of an honor. It's, it's something people do to to honor you, and it's an honor if you accept their invitation than it is here in the West. Uh, but Jesus asked him, in fact, he told him, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus wouldn't invite him because Zacchaeus knows there's no way this good, holy man who, who's not interested in money or power or pleasure is going to come to me, the chief criminal in Jericho's house. But he does. He honors him with it. It's a great honor. And everybody knows it. Do you see that? Look what they say in verse 6. Or look what it says. Now when he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So he just comes down and welcomes him gladly. Please come to my house. Yes, I'd love to have you. Verse 7, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, complain, whine. He has gone to be a guest of a sinner. A sinner. It's public knowledge. He's the enemy. He's gone to be with the enemy. No good Jew would go to be, especially a rabbi, especially a teacher, especially one who, who might be the Messiah, would go and eat with that guy. I can imagine the scene, right? They're coming through. If you've been in the Middle East, they, they usually have uh, mud walls because there's no wood there. Um, and so there, there's laneways, right, that separate the compounds um, of where the houses are, the mud houses are. And so I can imagine he's coming through one of these, these alleyways, and there's people, all sorts of people stuffed at the front and at the back, and Jesus is making his way through, and the disciples are following P, and people are calling after Jesus. Jesus, come and come on and, and speak at our synagogue just once. Would you just deliver one message to us? And, and, and they're harassing the, the disciples and, and yelling, out, yelling out, come on, tell your teacher to come and teach under the, the famous palm trees. We'll give you a great meal. We'll, we'll, you can stay at one of our nicest hotels. Hey, Jesus, I... I was there when you built, when you made the food come for those 5,000 people. Give us some food now. Show us a miracle. We, we heard you healed that blind man. Heal some of our people, right? They're all trying to get his attention. I can imagine the disciples. Sorry, everyone. We're on our way to Jerusalem. We can't stop. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus stops. He changes his plans. That would have offended some people. In fact, it, 
It says, Luke tells us, all the people, that doesn't mean every single person, but the majority of people saw this and began to mutter, complain. The crowd was ticked. He went against the Jewish tradition. You do not step foot into a sinner's house, especially when you're a rabbi, especially when you're a, a holy man. And he didn't do it for anyone else. It's a complete cultural faux pas. And yet Jesus doesn't seem too concerned with it. That's the thing I love about Jesus. He's so much not like me. He's just not really that concerned with what people think of him. Now, he doesn't backfire, you know, give out throwback insults to them. Do you know who I am? I can decide to go whoever's house I want to go. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. Who are you to tell me that I can't do it? No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't justify the decision. Listen, guys, ladies, I, I need to go to demonstrate to you that I have come to seek and save the lost. No, he doesn't justify it. Just rolls with it. Why? We'll see it in verse 10. But it's a lesson to us of evangelism tip number five. We, you, me, we have to let go of trying to get everyone's approval in order to accomplish the mission God has sent us on. We have to let go of trying to get everyone's approval if we're going to complete the mission that God has called us to. He did the same thing when he associated with the Samaritan woman didn't he? There wasn't really much thought of what are people going to think. And, and I just want to pause on that. Like, talk honestly. We need to understand the times in which we live. It's been all the time, but it's increasingly. We can see it. There is more and more people who would like the church, Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches to not exist anymore. They would like them gone from our society and all our uh, evangelical ministries and our evangelism efforts to cease and this country to become a completely secular country. That is a growing popular idea. We have to understand that there are people rejoicing that an estimated one-third of churches will never open again. There are people, there is a spiritual force behind those people that don't want us to do what God has called us to. And if we're always going to be worried about what everybody thinks, we won't complete the mission that God has called us to. And now, hear me. It doesn't mean we become rude. It doesn't mean we become rebels doesn't mean we yell at people when they yell at us or throw at insults when people insult us. No, it doesn't mean that. But it means we become determined to do that which Christ has called us to. If they did that in Acts, if they were so concerned about what everyone would think, well, the church would have simply evaporated. If Jesus had done that throughout his ministry, well, he simply wouldn't have completed his ministry. He didn't question, you know, oh, should I have received, should I have given that invitation to come to your house? No, he didn't question. He just carried on. It didn't quite phase him. And as we move forward in a post-Christian culture, 
we have to understand and, and come to the conclusion, we got to be all right with the fact that people are going to not like us. Like, and that it's going to become more and more of a pressure for us to just be quiet. Be quiet. You can run a soup kitchen out of there. You can, you can do some nice things in the community. But if you do evangelism, if you do ministry, we're going to get rid of you. Because you're not significant anymore in our culture. We've got to be all right with saying, you know what? God has given us a mission, and we've got to do it. Zacchaeus noticed that, though. We see that, don't we? Zacchaeus takes notice that Jesus doesn't respond and, and throw him under the bus. And so he repents. Remember the Samaritan woman? Right? She didn't try and justify her sins when Jesus brought it out. You've been married five times. She didn't go on the defensive. Well, everybody's calling Zacchaeus a scumbag. Right? You're going to eat with a sinner? Zacchaeus isn't on the, the ropes and, hey, 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 you don't know what you, I've gone through and, hey, I earned that money the right way and, and you don't know how hard I work. No, he doesn't say that. He also doesn't start threatening them. Hey, you who's behind on your taxes, I'm going to be coming for you later. No, there's no defense. Jesus took notice that Jesus, or Zacchaeus took notice that Jesus was interested in his life. And so he repents. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said, said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I will give away half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. What is re repentance? Simple terms. It's to say, whichever path you're on, and, and there's only one path that leads to Christ. Only one path that leads to heaven. So whatever sinful path we're on, we stop and say no more and turn and go towards Christ. That is repentance. And, and, and so Zacchaeus, the thing Zacchaeus needed to repent from was money and wealth. That was his God. That is what ruled his life. That is what uh, drove his existence. That's who's on the throne in his life. And so Zacchaeus knew what he had to do. He had to give away half of his wealth. Why did he have to do that? Because sometimes when something has us, when an, when an addiction, when a false god, when a, there's something that has a power over us, we have to break it, break its hold on us. And he's not like, well, I'll give away 100 bucks. Is that good? No, no, he's like, this thing has a power on me, but it's never satisfying me. And I want th what Jesus is offering. I want this eternal life I've heard about. And so he broke the power, the hold that this had on him. And then the other part of repentance is, is to look to do what, make right what you've done wrong to the best of your ability. And so what's he done wrong? Well, he's ripped off a lot of people and he knows it. And they know it. He's making a public proclamation. We've got to understand the scene here. There's lots of people around. And, and he knows Jesus is going to see right through him. He's serious. So if somebody has, if their God is sex and pornography and immorality, right? Repentance for them would be to make a drastic break of those things. To become accountable to, to, to men or women, depending on who they are. 
and, and, and to fight against the urges to, and the impulses to go back at that. And if they've hurt people through their immorality, to look to make amends, to admit to that, which Zacchaeus is doing. That is repentance. If, if there's a woman who, who lies a lot or in gossips a lot, right? Repentance to her, the, the God of, I have to always be the one spitting out things. I have to have the attention on me. I, I have to know it, be in everyone's business. Repentance to her would be to admit, listen, I'm a liar. I'm a gossiper. Like when you can admit those words, I am this. There's something freeing about that. And then you become accountable. She would become accountable to others and say, like, I have this problem and I need you to hold me accountable. And, and I know God sees through any lies. And so you need to ask me in the presence of the Lord if I've done these things, right? That would be repentance. And in the early, earlier that day, Luke tells us in chapter 18, he had rejected a rich man. Like, we've got to understand the situation. Within probably a couple of hours, Jesus has rejected one rich man and invited another rich man into salvation. We read about that in chapter 18, verse 18. You can turn there. It's just one, probably one page back. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. I have kept all of these from my youth, he said. When Jesus heard this, he told them, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it amongst the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Rejected. Jesus rejected him. And he accepts one man. Why did, what, what was the difference? Is Jesus saying everyone has to sell half of what they have or sell it all? No, he's not saying that. Both Zacchaeus and this rich man had a God named money. That was their God. Zacchaeus was willing to give it up and put Christ on the throne, this rich man was not willing to give it up. Which is tip number six. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, they need to clearly understand that in order to gain eternal life, which is free, you have to submit your old life to Christ. Right? And, that, and we think of that, oh, it's not going to be any fun, and it's just going to be horrible. No, it's not like that. But it's like, it's like in the old days, you know, in the old days when there was kingdoms and there was kings, right? You couldn't come from one kingdom and, 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 and be under the protection of the new king and enjoy the splendor of the new king and still have allegiance to the old king, right? And so for both these men, their allegiance, their old king was money. And so we have to tell people, they have to understand that Jesus wants their life. He wants their old life in order to give them a new life. And Zacchaeus was willing. How do we know that? How do we know he isn't just faking it? Like, right? Like, I've met some people, and, and it's so disappointing when, they, when they act like they're so interested, and they make bold claims, and then they don't follow through with them. How do we know he was serious? Well, Jesus tells us, because Jesus can see through. 
unlike me or unlike anyone else on this earth, we can't see into people's minds. Jesus can. And how does he respond? Today, like right now, salvation has come to his, this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Jesus pronounces, just like the guy on the cross, right now, this is salvation. Salvation has come into this man's house, this man's life. Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, put it well. He said, the, the life of Christianity consists of progressive, or sorry, possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say, Christ is a savior. It is quite another to say, he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. Jesus knew Zacchaeus was willing. He knew those claims he had made were real. He saw into his heart. He realized at that moment that Jesus was Lord and he was willing to make Jesus his Lord. And so he was saved. And he gained far more than he gave up. I can just imagine Zacchaeus' life in that town as he's given away half of his wealth and he's, he's made right the wrong. Can you imagine the testimony? Like no matter, no wonder Jesus stopped for this man. The testimony that would have come out of this man's life being changed, his heart being changed, would be phenomenal. So that is why Jesus, you know, didn't care what people thought. And we see it here in verse 10. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came. This is why I came. This was my primary objective, to seek and save the lost. It's a, the idea of warfare. When, when I was in probably one of the, the most fiercest periods of combat overseas, we were in a district called Helmand. It's the largest district in Af- Afghanistan, and it, was, it had been held by the Taliban for about five years. And we went in there, our, our battle group, to the capital uh, city called Lashkar. And it had been taken over by the Taliban. The police had been chased at or killed. And our primary objective... Okay, as our, as our uh, companies formed up on the battle lines and we had the maps and there was only one way in, um, either through the mountains, which we couldn't get in with our vehicles, or across a bridge on a, on a long wadi. So there's only one way in. And I remember the maps as they were laying it out. Our primary objective is the police station. There are secondary objectives that we need to take all around, but your primary objective, the thing you're going for, the thing you must do is to take that police station back because it's the, 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 uh, it signifies power. And we had to take that power back from the Taliban. And, and so in the same way, Jesus' primary objective when he came was to seek and save the lost. He had secondary objectives to teach about the kingdom of God, to heal, to train up disciples, to condemn the corrupt religious Pharisees. But his primary objective was to do the seeking and the saving. And in and, and Christians, we don't do the saving. That is not our primary objective. But we are called to seek 
and to tell people about the saving that has been done. That is a Christian's primary objective in life, like one of them, that is yours. Once you are saved by God and you know God, and your job is to go out and seek and save, and not just seek and tell them about the saving. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not just something you, you just think a little of. It takes courage. But it was the first commission ever given by Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 17, to Peter, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers, a fisher of men. That means to go, to be a fisherman, Jesus, Jesus was talking to a fisherman. Peter knew what it meant to be a fisher of men. Like, to be a fisherman, you got to get in a boat, go out to sea, it's hot, you got to row out there, you got to uh, put down the nets or the baits, you got to wait, you got to wrestle it back in. Like, he's talking in language that Peter understood. This isn't going to be a cakewalk but it's your job. It's what I'm calling you to do. And the last commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, Matthew 28, 19, is to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like, our job is to seek. There's no getting away from it. And it's like the best, most fulfilling thing we can do with our lives. And I just want to share with you as, as we close, just a little way that you can be a part of seeking the lost. One of our, our members here, Don, he had a, a great idea that he wants to do. He's, he's running it. Uh, you know, Gravenhurst fills up with people in the summer, whether those lockdowns or not, they come. And so we know that they're going to be here. And so we want to just, this summer, if, you know, if we're allowed, hopefully, we want to just put a table out there. Don's going to put a table out there. And we're going to have Bibles, and we're going to have probably a sign that says... God questions, need prayer, come. And we're hoping people will just come up and ask questions and we can pray for them and we can answer their questions. If you want to be a part of seeking out those people, right? It'll take a little courage, might be a little uncomfortable, but it's like a step forward. Then I want you to contact Don. His information is going to be right here in the, in the email you've gotten and, and you let him know. It's like two hours couple Sundays throughout the summer. We're not talking about a huge commitment. But wouldn't it be great if you could be a part of seeing somebody come to Christ? I hope you'll, you'll let them know. Well, let's pray. Lord, God, we love you. We thank you for saving us. And Lord, I realize I can't save everyone. I realize I can't save anyone. But you want to use me and you want to use everybody listening to be a part of bringing people to the knowledge and saving faith in you. And so I pray you would help us to see that you're saving all kinds of people all over the world and that we can be a part of that. I pray we would take the instructions that we've seen from you, uh, your way of doing things, and we would apply them to our lives, and we would have courage and faith and believe you're still doing good works. You're still saving people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.